0: It's like there's something objective about a meme. You know, something like we all know like when a meme sucks or when a meme is good. You know, like there's some like objective content there. Like really good meme is like, like so rich. Like a picture, it says a thousand words. A good meme says like a hundred thousand words of cultural commentary in a single image. You know. Um,
1: all right, welcome to another episode of Not Investment Advice. you got the NIA boys here today. Jack Butcher, Trunk fan, Bilal Zaidi, with a very, very special guest, Luke Burgess. Welcome to the show, man.
0: Man, thanks so much for having me, guys. This is a long time coming. I'm excited <laughs> for this one.
1: Yeah, we've we, <laughs> we referenced your we referenced-, you, we referenced your book several times on the pod. Uh, and so for people who don't oh, no. know who you are, you've, you're the author of a book called Wanting. Uh, it's a legendary book about the French philosopher René Girard and his idea, Mimesis. Um, and you've also got two substacks: anti-mimetic and ride or die. Um, yeah, but, uh, I, I don't know if there's anything die. else I, I mean, missed
0: out. I, I like that one, ride or, drys, ride, or like die. That. Ride, ride or dies, but I like that, ride or die. Or yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. <laughs> I, <liked that>. oh. <laughs> I
2: writing the notes and I know you used to listen to hip hop. I don't know if you still do listen to hip hop in your book. You're mentioning uh, that you, 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 listen to hip hop back in the day. So ride or you die like... and it sound more appropriate.
0: Yeah, yeah. 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 No, it's supposed to evoke that for sure. No, huge hip hop <laughs> fan. Man. I I'm a I'm a child of the nineties. I grew up with hip hop.
2: Who? Who are we talking here? Give us your we always talk every yeah, other episode not, so. we talk about. It? What are your top three? Like from the nineties?
0: From the nineties? Um, Nas. Um, let's see. Just I mean, Nas, Pac, who else did I like? And bone, bone Thugs and harmony. Eh, so I'm from I'm from Michigan, Michigan. man. So like we got that Midwest connection. And uh, East 99 Eternal. I mean, I must have listened to that nonstop Dude, for a good. Crossroads when months.
2: that song dropped. It's so good. I think East 99 sold. It's one of the best-selling albums of all time. I think it's thirty, is. forty, fifty million records.
0: Yeah, it's insane. I've heard, I've heard that song probably a thousand times, and I crossroads? learned last week that it was about Easy. I didn't <laughs> even know that. <laughs>
2: you didn't know that. I didn't know. Okay. That. Because he's a mentor for uh, for Bon uh, yeah, well, so I and mean I think, yeah, he, I think uh, he's in
0: the music video too that just shows like how aloof I was when I was in <laughs> <there. laughs> junior but, high and high school.
2: So I know the show, this is the first show that might even have advice, actually, because uh for the listeners that aren't familiar with memetic desire, uh Luke is the guru. Uh, well, I, I know you hate that word too, so I shouldn't have said that. But Blau, can <laughs> you actually whip up uh meme of the week? Well, yeah, Because we've got it's a not meme a meme a week, this yeah. week. But we had we wanted to, we were in a group chat and we had to ask you. So uh, White Lotus, the HBO show, referenced memetic desire. So, uh, for the listeners that aren't seeing the screen here, there's a scene of one of the characters and he says, You have a bad case of something. It's called memetic desire. Now, Luke, did HBO reach out to you? Have they kicked you up any royalties? What's going on
0: here? <laughs> Man, I haven't seen a red penny from that. No, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know the backstory for that. I really don't. It was crazy. Like, I, I wasn't watching White Lotus. My wife wanted me to watch the first season. And I was like, no, 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 I don't I'm not gonna watch that. And then uh one day I just my phone was blowing up with text messages. And they're like, Did you know about this? And I was like, Oh shit, now I gotta watch this whole season. <laughs> it was good. It was good. No, oh, so you but did it, get that. Was, the, was it was I
2: mean, they they nailed it, right? Like they, not...
0: Yeah, no, I I don't I think they got it right, man. It was it was uh the rivalry that got right. I I mean I had all kinds of because I knew it was coming when I started watching the season. So I was like, how deep are they going to go here? Like with the scapegoat, um, is it just going to be a mimetic rivalry between these two guys? I had all kinds of fantasies about like one of them walking out. If you've seen the show, like they often have breakfast in the morning, you know, and it's beautiful, this beautiful resort. I had these fantasies of one of them, you know, walking out there with my book on the table or something like that <laughs> and like doing a cameo. Because but... they had a couple of books. No, but that, that didn't happen. But I, I thought it was pretty good.
2: Okay, fantastic. Actually, I'll I'll pass it off to Jack here, mostly because you two have worked in the past uh, uh, some inside baseball. Yeah, how
1: did you two, how did you guys
3: connect, by the way? Jack and Luke. uh, The Twitterverse, I think, I can't remember if it was an intro, Luke, or if we just uh, sort of algorithmically were uh, introduced somehow.
1: Algorithmically introduced is incredible. (laughs) I,
0: I, I think we were algorithmically introduced, man. Like during yeah, the pandemic, yeah. there we, were some people. There were like, I don't know, a half a dozen people that just I saw every single day, and Jack yeah. was one of them. So the algorithm must know that I like his work. Mate, I Think Jack and Trump. We were did both a great, there,
3: yeah. We did a great. It was 2021 now, right, Luke? We did a yep. a collaboration yep. for the launch of Wanting. Uh-huh. Did a little collection called Visualizing Mimesis. We should put that in the link in the notes. Unfortunately, I think the the platform that that went live on is is uh, not showing it somehow. So we need to find a way to get that back up. Um, hey Jack,
1: is it not on the chain though? What's going on? Whoa, whoa.
3: No, it is. It is, but the front end is, is oh, got compromised it, got it. right now. So we need to figure out a way to to got display it. it. But man, I was reading through what you wrote for that the other day, Luke. Prescient. Super. Yeah.
2: Can we walk through uh, some of these visuals? And uh, I, I guess at this point now would be a good time for us to send me out, uh, uh, Luke. With that, you know, could you hit the TLDR on what my magic desire is for the listeners? I may not know.
0: Yeah. Um. I, if we're gonna pull it up on the screen, I don't even remember exactly what I wrote. So I'm interested to see. Man, I wanna, I oh. wanna
3: read the. Um. I wanna read exactly what you wrote for this, Luke. this class. It's short. I'm gonna do it. So I'm, I'm gonna steal the thought, Luke's thunder here, but I'm gonna I'm gonna read the. Uh, it might be better than read I what he wrote. So go for right. it. Right. So we did this thing it's called a visualizing Mimesis, a collection, we we did like three illustrations. And Luke, correct me if I'm wrong, but the like advent of the popularity of NFTs, like coinciding with uh, the launch of the book, 100. Kind of yeah, was a ripe fertile ground for writing it was this was like gme like that you open this passage with gme so let me just read it uh it says memes are stuff memetic desire is movement on january 25th 2021 gme looked like four meaningless characters on a screen on january 26 2021 a movement of 92.71 percent. gme meant something it represented the desires of thousands then millions behind the stock ticker were people looking to other people, wanting what other people wanted? Desires aren't static; they're mimetic. They rise and fall on the strength of others' desires. The memes are just along for the ride. The memes are code, shorthand for the desires. The price of memes are a signal, and the signal that they're sending is this: people want what other people want, down to the nth circle of hell or to the moon. <laughs> we're wanting. <laughs> Class. That's, That's beautiful, incredible.
2: incredible! Do we have the visual there, or uh, you can't find it? Uh, the visual I can't is pull it great, up,
3: but we'll put it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the last part of it as well. It says, value isn't in the eye of the beholder. It's in the eyes of the other beholders, beholding me, beholding and wondering why. <laughs> value isn't subjective. It's intersubjective. It's generated in the space between people. It's me looking at you, looking at me, looking at a $12 million stuffed shark and wondering why not 13 the scene setting that Sotheby's and Christie's do, the valet service, black ties, and mimetic martinis only work through the organ of eyes. There's an inner eye though that works in our new digital auction houses. It sees everything, it feels everything, it has no need for bright lights or the sound of the gavel. Might seem who it might seem unclear who the auctioneer is in the space, but I'll tell you who or what it is, mimetic desire.
2: Yo, you know what when that you're in right that meme right of that the guy say, yo, let him cook. Yo, hold <laughs> up, let him cook. <laughs> let him cook it, cook this I'll guy cook. 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 Yeah, yeah look, incredible. I understand that why was... you like Bone
1: Thugs gotta... now, cause that sounded like a Bone Thugs verse that that, that when he was going <laughs> up the told <ground> <laughs> <laughs> so, you, Thugs about to come
2: yeah, on right now. We, we need to get in.
0: get Timberland to make a make a beat for us, man. A dope we beat. Stick step that in GPT. <laughs> <laughs> we can get yeah. Yeah. back made today. Man, probably. that was a that was a fun project, Jack. Like, I mean, there was something about like playing off of each other with with that, like the visuals informing the writing. And the writing helping with the visuals, and it was the same thing with the book. I hired an illustrator for the book, so it's full of these funny, goofy little illustrations. Um, I worked with an illustrator from the New Yorker, uh, and you know, I paid for it out of my own pocket. Perfect. Like I don't know, pe- publishers don't pay for that stuff, you know what I mean? But it was yeah. it was so important to me to have the visuals in the book, and I actually found that it helped me to write. You know, like thinking through what those should look like were helping me figure out how to say it and vice versa. And I had the same experience with you, Jack. Like it's awesome. And I'm going
3: to do it. I want to do it again. Like it's, it's so Yeah, man, so... we definitely got to do something else for sure. Yeah. Right? It's so <laughs> like these ideas, obviously the timing of the launch of the book, it just feels like the way in which the world is behaving right now, like that is the exponential force in most of the things we talk about on this podcast and like the, the connectivity that now exists that exposes that and obviously rides it up and down and creates this mad volatility. Is, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. Very, I mean, I, like It came out in 2021, the book, right, Luke?
0: 2021, yep, summer of 2021. Yeah. It's going to be yeah. a classic, man, Would people refer back to that. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, and it's funny, like I could have never timed, I, I could have never planned the timing like that, man. I mean, I, I pitched that idea in early 2019, and I had no idea you know, what the world is going to look like. Obviously, I mean, the pandemic, but also NFTs. And it came out at the perfect time, depending on how you look at it, to help us kind of make sense of what was happening in the world. Um, Yeah, man, it's funny how that works. Definitely funny how that works. I mean, back in 20... And it's funny, like, memes weren't really... I mean, memes have been a thing for a long time, but it wasn't really, in my opinion, it wasn't until the pandemic that I started seeing, like, really killer memes. (laughs) Everybody yeah. had more time on theirs. I saw an article in the New York Times from 2018, I think last week. And it was like, New York Times talks about the best memes from 2018. And dude, they are terrible. They're not even. Yeah, memes. yeah. yeah. So like, it, right, like, right, right, right. You know, it lists like the, the top 10 memes from 2018. And I think number one is the hot duck that appeared in Central Park in New York City. The hot duck is just literally Man, an image me- of this wow. multicolored. Uh, I don't know what exactly, what some Asian duck or something like that. It's like, that's not really, is that really a meme? <laughs> just a picture right. of the duck.
2: You want to know what you're describing and what it feels like? You know when you're watching game tape of like the 1980s basketball and there like one guy takes a three during the entire game? And you're like, this is just a different game. Like this is not yeah. Steph Curry taking 12 threes a game from 35 feet, right? I think that's like the meme evolution. It's like, I, I love the way yeah, you got it. it yeah. And I've only memed for like, me personally, for like the last two years, like I've followed meme culture for the past decades on Reddit and whatnot. But I think the main thing, and I think you touched on it, is it now just touches everything, right? Like no matter what industry you're in, and you're seeing it now is a lot of like niche uh, Twitter influencers like Alex Sue. My buddy is like a, a lawyer, right? And he does like legal memes that didn't exist like one or two years ago. But now he just takes all the templates that everybody else uses for like whatever meme it was, like tech or or, or pop culture, and it's just like he's playing it to the wall. And I think that's what I've seen that uh, probably makes this meme explosion feel like so meaty. It's like in every industry now, right? You can be like a you can be like a recycling yep. expert and start using these memes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Cause I mean, there's, there's something, I mean, I, let me, I I never really answered your question, like the TLDR on memetic desire. It's like, there's something objective about a meme or you know, something like we all know, like when a meme sucks or when a meme is good, you know, like there's some like objective content there, like really good meme is like so rich, like a picture, it says a thousand words. A good meme says like a hundred thousand words of cultural commentary in a single image, you know? Um, but then there's something subjective about it too, right? Like it's kind of in the, in what Jack and I worked on together, like certain memes, like take hold, they catch fire, they become memetic. So I almost think of meme as like the thing, like it's like a noun and mime is, which is the root of the word memetic is like the verb, right? Like miming versus memeing. And when a certain meme kind of catches hold because whether it's because Elon created it and tweets it, I mean, that's, a nice way to get traction for a meme but the two of those things together are are super powerful so like the mimesis like just add i think i think the mimesis can make a bad meme kind of viral but it can't really make up for a bad meme but when when it's added on to a good meme something uh like exponential happens to it and it becomes you know it just becomes its own thing right it takes on a life of its own
3: and the uh Origin of the word mime is like to copy, right? To mimic? Yeah. Oh, so that's one to, of the roots? To mimic, yep. That's that's the root. So, you know, mimesis
0: comes from a Greek word that basically just means to mimic, to imitate. So, you know, when you hear mimetic, just think mime or mimic. Uh, and it's, you know, <laughs> the bane of my existence for the last... Two years have been people spelling it mimetic m oh, yeah, e m. Oh, as a meme? I, yeah, I mimetic. Right? <laughs> yeah, like a app that, or something, that's, right? Exactly. But that—that's actually a word that refers to like mimetic theory from Dawkins, right? It originally came from Richard uh, Dawkins yeah. back in the seventies or eighties. Can't remember which. It might have been the sixties, to be honest. Yeah, um, man, but well, mimetic is, is with an I, and just think mind and think like movement, think action. You hear that? Whereas a meme is something yeah. that's a little more static.
2: You know, uh, I, just, I just want to give some reference for listeners that actually aren't familiar with memetic desire at all. And uh, you, you, this is, I think, chapter one of your book. And you actually go to the evol- evolutionary like foundation of why you know we are uh, memetic creatures, why we look to models to copy and follow. And all, all I know is this. When I was listening to that part of the chapter, because you're talking about kids, right? Even like newborns the the idea of my meg desire just hit me like a hammer when I was watching my kid playing like like he'll be at the library playing in the in the shared play area some kid will be there'll be a block there no one gives a shit about the blocks no one gives a shit. And then one kid grabs a block. My kid just does a beeline towards that block that he's ignored for the last 30 minutes, and like that's the only thing I need to know that as humans are fully mimetic animals, and just from day one. And uh, that was that for me was the most crystallizing thing that ever happened around like Rene and mimetic. It's like it happened when my kid was probably 18 months old. So this is three and a half years ago. But that to me was like that's it. If you have a kid, you understand it immediately.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, and you turn 10 toddlers loose in a room that has 10 <laughs> equally cool toys. There's one for each of them. They're they're not just going to each choose a toy. They're going to converge on one or, or two of them. And, and the craziest thing that happens is that they reinforce each other's desire for the same toy. And they, they literally reinforce it. So my I'm an only child, so I was really good friends with my cousin when I was a kid. And we this happened with baseball cards. So I, I collected baseball cards when I was growing up and he would basically like mimetically hack me to make me want baseball cards and increase their value you know like you know with with if his friends thought a baseball card was really cool i thought it was really cool um i didn't know how much these things were worth i I didn't have like beckett magazine i wasn't looking up values of these cards i mean the value was completely subjective depending on how much i like the player how cool the picture of the player was and like all of these like subjective factors so I'll never forget the greatest trick he ever pulled on me. was he had a card of like some no name player and it had like somebody had written like a, the name on the back of the card in a marker, right? It's so like ruined the card, like took like a magic marker and like written the name like Kyle on the back of the card or something like that. And He goes, Oh, that's actually like that, that player's uh kid. That's his kid who signed that card. And everything uh, <laughs> like all of us fell for it. And I end up trading away like 50 of my best cards to get that one card. Yeah, how about a rookie Henderson
2: this... rookie card and right. uh, I don't need yeah. this Babe Ruth one anymore.
0: <laughs> I want that one. Yeah, it's crazy how that happens. And, and yeah. it's not that much different as adults.
2: Yeah, I think, no. uh, th- which is why th- this next question is very related and I think makes it super tangible for people is, uh, I mean, in your book, you talk about how Steve Jobs was influenced by Robert Friedland. So I actually know Robert Friedland because he's a Vancouver mining guy. Like I don't, I don't personally know I know a lot of people that do know him, and his reputation is much different than I guess. Like how you, this is in the book. The TLDR about uh, Luke's book is that Steve Jobs was at Reed College and
0: uh, was at Portland. I think so, somewhere. Yeah, in
2: there. it was in Oregon, and uh, he basically met some dude uh, who is now a mining billionaire, but at that time was just a college guy that was he was just well. The, I guess in this instance that he met him. He was having sex with his girlfriend and Steve Jobs just walked in on them. and the dude just didn't even care. He's just like, hey, listen, we're here to do a transaction, like some type of computer. And uh, I don't mind that you're here. Let me finish my uh, my deed. And then the whole point is that Steve Jobs watched somebody and just didn't give a shit about rules. And like he lived by his own code. And uh, so uh, my question was, Steve Jobs obviously became one of the greatest you know, creators of mimetic desire and like wielding that tool. I don't know if that's actually true. I don't know if you would believe that, but who would be on like the Mount Rushmore? Because in my mind, it was like Steve Jobs, obviously might be on the Mount Rushmore, but who's like on the Mount Rushmore of Memetic desire? Like who has historically been some of the, well, I been called 20th century, maybe you don't need to go back all the way to like, not only Jesus or anything, but in the 20th, <laughs> 20th century, it's <laughs> I
0: mean, like Dude, is this have that Jesus, one? right?
2: Because like, that was going to be
0: my answer, man. It's yeah. Jesus. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, that, yeah, that's a that's a tough question. Yeah, so that, that story was uh, Jobs walked in and he saw this dude who who just seemed to be operating on a different level of desire, and somebody said that Friedland had what they call a reality distortion field, and that Jobs kind of also had one, and that Friedland was his model. So you think about the kind of people that can distort reality around them with like a single uh, tweet or something like that. I mean, Elon for sure, you know, uh, comes to mind. Um, you know, I think any meme lord is uh, is a, is a distorts reality in some way, and you know if they know how to kind of hack mimesis as well, um, man. Um, I think you know I I tell the story in the book. I mean, um, Eddie Bernays, right, was like probably the godfather of of this kind of distorting reality. I mean, he's in the early 20th century, he's basically considered the father of modern day public relations and every stunt that he ever pulled to get people to do anything, including getting women to smoke in the 1920s when it wasn't really popular, pretty much only men smoked. He, he orchestrated stunts and essentially used mimetic desire to get people to do what he wanted them to do, right? So in the, in the case of, the, um, of getting women to smoke, he was hired by the guy that ran American Tobacco Company, and he wanted Lucky Strikes to become popular. And women are half of the market in this country. He's like, "How do I get women to smoke?" And Bernays orchestrated this crazy stunt where, on the Easter Day parade, when they all, you know, paraded down Fifth Avenue, which would be like the equivalent of the Super Bowl today, you know, everybody was watching it. Uh, he planted Lucky Strike cigarettes on on a bunch of really fashionable women that were walking down the street. And kind of got them to whip them out and start smoking them at around the same time. It looked totally spontaneous. And it was this act of defiance because, you know, no, women didn't smoke in public, especially. And from that day forward, it just caught caught on. It was super contagious. So, like, he's on the Mount Rushmore for sure. Um, for going all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century, I think with the advent of games, man, like Elon has got to be up there for sure. Um, and there are positive ones and there are negative ones, right? I mean, I think they're like a lot of, uh, we talk about memetic desire, we only we usually talk about it like in a in a negative sense, you know, like people getting us to kind of like pull us away from what we really want or something like that. Um, but there are I think there are positive examples too. Um and I think when we talk about the Mount Rushmore, like we we're just thinking about the the people that everybody knows, but you know, parents are to me, parents are the greatest models of desire, right? In the positive sense. And anybody who's a parent or I mean, I'm a teacher too, and I see the way that I affect my students. So it kind of gives me like this added Sense of like responsibility, right? Like, you know, they're not just paying attention to what I say, they're paying attention to what I show them that I want. And they can read between the lines and they can spot bullshit a mile away.
2: So, like, uh, no, I I love that. And I think uh, you mentioned in your book that even you writing the book was like you falling into mimetic desire a bit, right? Is like, obviously, like the idea of being an author is like a model of what. I don't know if you want to be a public intellectual and not into to call you that, but clearly you were, uh, but for the listeners, that don't know, uh, Luke was previously an entrepreneur, uh, I had an e-commerce business called Fitfield, uh, almost sold it to Zappos. That deal fell apart and kind of led Luke down this road of like more introspection. But I mean, when you say that you have the extra responsibility, what does that, how does that manifest itself with your students? Like, what does that look like?
0: Um, I mean, you know, it, it looks like this. I mean, I tell my students that like at one point in my life, like making as much money as possible, like Sam Bakeman style, like I, wasn't, I was never an effective altruist, but I, I had the mentality that I'm going to make, you know, a billion dollars as quickly as I can so that I can give it all away and become this great philanthropist, like who hasn't had that fantasy at some point. And, you know, money was the most important thing in my life. So now when I tell my students that, um, I'm like, it's not not important but it's definitely not the number one thing in my life if i say that they're watching everything that i do because i am a public person and if i behave as if it is they spot that immediately right um so they're like watching what i want even if i don't articulate it and that's kind of a kind of a terrifying thing like you know your children know what what you care about right? they know what your priorities are they know what you want to do so you know in that sense um it just gives me an added level of awareness because there's a difference between a role model and a, and a model of desire. I think a role model just models a role. So like my accountant is a role model to me for the level of like how organized I would like to be, you know, but I'm not. Um, I double booked my schedule that my house cleaners to come today when I forgot I had this podcast. So I'm sitting here <laughs> in a WeWork right now. It's first time I've ever done this. Um, so, well, appreciate it. That... <laughs> so I apologize. My audio might not be as good as it usually is. So I'd like, he's a role model to me in terms of like his level of like diligence and organization. I have no idea what the man wants or cares about. I don't know what he desires. He's been my accountant for 15 years and I have no idea. So in some sense, he's a role model to me, but he's not a model of desire to me. Um, and the models of, you know, I, I have models of desire and I have role models and sometimes they're the same person, but the models of desire um, are more important than what we typically think of as role models because they're modeling something that's deeper. So, you mentioned like uh, I almost sold my company to Zappos and became really good friends with Tony Shea. Like, Tony Shea was a model of desire for me. He was also a role model because he was a, I thought he was a brilliant entrepreneur, but he was also a model of desire. So, like, I tell the story, or, like, it's kind of embarrassing, right? I tell the story, the book, like, uh, I met Tony. And I got super self conscious because like he drove like a really shitty car, man. Like you know, and like my car was nicer than his, and I was like, my car should not be nicer than Tony's, right? And I like, uh, and he wore like jeans and a t shirt every day, so like he was he was sort of like modeling a desire for me. I mean, there's a signaling function to that, right? You've had a certain amount of success as an entrepreneur, you don't need to like prove anything to anybody. You don't need to drive a nice car. And I remember just like how much meeting him and becoming friends with him changed my entire world but affected me at the level of what I wanted because I, I I sort of like wanted a different lifestyle than I thought you know he he just affected me in a very short period of time in terms of like a lifestyle questions and like the kind of lifestyle that I desired in ways that had nothing to do with building a business if that makes sense
2: Luke do you know how when people uh we, we talked about jack before but Jack's been through phases where he- like count every calorie and just be super shredded, <laughs> uh, you know. But that takes over your mind, right? Like you go eat, you eat, you go eat a meal, and then you'll like yell at the waitress if the if there's too much sauce on your Caesar salad. So like, what I'm wondering is this. now that you have such a deep understanding, momentary desire, does it does it actually ruin your not ruin? Does it affect your life in a, a negative way in the sense of like everything you do now? You're just like fuck think this month, this, this guy trying to hack me, or or I can't do this because I'm going down the wrong path. Is it one of those things where it's just like just like cloud hanging over you because you just know how powerful it is, or or it's just integrating your life? Did you see what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, it's like one of those things. that's probably healthy not to think about it too much.
2: Okay. Okay.
0: <laughs> so no, def- definitely has a, definitely has a room in my life. I mean, if anything, it just gives like my wife and I and my friends and I like a lot to laugh at ourselves at, right? Okay. Because of how like mimetic we actually are so like I don't I don't pretend in any way to like have escaped this because I don't think that it's possible to right so like when I got in like the van life bandwagon because I was scrolling Instagram too much in 2020 you know in the very process of writing this book like my wife just laughs at me and like I'm a super mimetic person right when it comes to like what I want even what I want to eat for dinner like I usually can't decide until I know what she wants you know um so you know no it doesn't it doesn't paralyze me but I could see how it could kind of like Really mind fuck a person if they they kind of, especially if you think that you shouldn't be mimetic. And that's like not the right takeaway from the book. It's not that like it's a bad thing or that you shouldn't be. It's that actually you are. <laughs> and, you know, just become aware of when it might be affecting us negative ways. That's all.
2: Well, you had a great tweet where uh, you said your, uh, uh, there's a recent tweet. You said your wife is in a group chat where they basically share. Items that they may or may not want, the things that they're interested in, but it might've literally just been because it's on Instagram feed. So they they posted in this group chat as a way to like release that memetic desire or, or something along those lines. But the TLDRs, this sounded like to me, like a version of thin desires versus thick desires. Was this, is this correct? And I don't know if you can uh, expound on that a bit more on those two things.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is, it's really funny. Um, Yeah, my wife's been in this group chat with a bunch of her friends since college. And... uh really jealous of it. I mean, I, well, sometimes it annoys the shit out of me, but like in general, <laughs> I'm really jealous of it. But yeah, so with what I call a thin desire is like this highly mimetic desire that you know, I'll be really into it. I'll think that I really want something today and it just it won't be important to me tomorrow or a week from now or even a few months from now, which is different than a thick desire, which is the kind of thing you know that I pursue that um, it's just kind of an endless well, right? The desire will either grow or it doesn't lessen or it won't deceive me. Right. There's some, th- there's some kind of like substance to it. So these thin desires are like, you know, just walking by a window or, you know, seeing somebody wearing something that I want or a certain kind of watch or certain kind of lifestyle that I, that I won't care about, you know, a few weeks from now. So, yeah, my, my wife in this group chat, one of them had this idea uh, that they were just going to open up an iPhone note called desires. <laughs> and, uh, and I use iPhone notes for everything, by the way, like I'm an iPhone note guy and I'm like, how did not how did not have this idea? for this and it's a it's a shared note and they just put like things that they want to like buy like the silly i don't know just like clothes that they want a vacation that they might want to go on and they put them in there for everybody else to see and it's kind of like a way to hold each other accountable and they they won't act on anything that goes in the desires note for like at least a week or a couple of weeks and 99 percent of the stuff that goes in that note they don't really care about anymore and they just look back on it and they just laugh oh, at yeah. each other and laugh at themselves. So I thought it was a brilliant little tactic to use.
2: That sounds like a warning app ring to be made right there. Yeah, yeah. You're allowed <laughs> five <laughs> desires a month. You get an extra $2, we'll give you one more desire. <laughs> and then uh, $2 more, you get images.
0: That's right. Well, yeah, look, I'm look. embarrassed. I didn't have the idea. Yeah, I, I hope look. she doesn't start that app and make a ton of money with <laughs> it.
1: Sorry, look, I was going to ask a follow up question to that because when you said that, that really resonated with me. There's, I think everyone's had that feeling of, I really want something and you're really motivated to get it. And then time passes, and you're like, this is, that was so dumb. Why? I didn't even need that in the first place. Um, but like, could you give examples of stuff that has stuck? And I think you called it a thick versus thin desire mm-hmm. there. So, and like, what, if I was trying to decipher which one was which, is it literally just a matter of waiting a few weeks? or is there another thing I should be kind of filtering for myself when I'm thinking about it?
0: There's a lot of things, that's a great question, and I think there's a lot of things that can kind of help make the decisions or discern what's the difference between thin and thick. So I started noticing something about myself when you know, I was building companies um, that I, I had, ever since I was a kid, I, I'm just a total nerd, man. I, I love reading philosophy, I always have, and I like reading classic literature. And I was finding myself like going, like I was, I would work until 8 PM and then I would go to a 24 hour coffee shop in LA where I was building my first company. And I would just like read this stuff until one, two o'clock in the morning. And then I'd get a few hours of sleep and get back up and do it again. And I started doing this for a while to the point where it like, I, I realized that I needed like more of that. Like that that's the kind of thick desire that, that wasn't going away. It's kind of like wanting to drink at the well of like some, some that's been around for a very long time and my day job you know the companies that i would building which were um logistics heavy and tech heavy they, that's fine i mean I, I like that but there was something like missing that that i could only do that for so long that i would kind of get bored and i want to build a new product that's the problem right so like um, I'm a bad product manager in the sense that I can't like stay with a, with any product that I've ever built for like a long period of time, right? So it's like I either have to sell it, um, and if I don't, I have a problem because I get bored. It's like maybe. So I think like I had I had like a for me like that there was a thick desire there that I realized that I I sort of always had, and I was like, you know, Luke, if you really want to be really fulfilled, you're going to have to find some way to nourish that. And like it's different for for every single one of us, but. I think the lesson that I learned was like I would sort of ignored my, my history and my background, even little things that if i had been paying attention, like I would have learned about myself from my own childhood, like things that have kind of like always been a part of who I am. And, you know, just getting caught up in the hustle, um, you know, the hustle makes you forget a lot of things. And, you know, that's just one example. There's been a lot of other things I've realized about myself. The older I get, the more mature that I get. Yeah, I love that. No,
2: what he's trying to say is you need to start that Arsenal blog again.
0: Yeah.
1: Your
2: Arsenal football.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the older I get, the more I realise everything comes back to the things we did as teenagers in bedrooms. Well, that sounds a little not what I wanted. But I mean, <laughs> when I say bedroom, I mean, I'm meant to say like... In I, many ways, like, that
3: is true, Bilal. The, yeah, that's, that's true as well.
1: But the innocent version of what no, I no, meant no. to say was... You don't even innocent.
2: walked it back at all, yeah, brother. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you
2: nailed it. Rafa, you might need to edit that out. Don't yeah, cut yeah, it. Yeah. But, uh, but... uh
1: no, no, but your dog's side. I mean, I literally had a vision of this tiny bedroom where there was a computer in the corner, which also is not helping my cause right now. But I would come home, drop my bag, I'd play championship bro, manager for about eight hours. Into like a I know, like... I know. I'm, I'm oh, just really, Close uh... the
2: door, lock it, put a chair yeah, up against exactly. the door, turn on the white noise. <laughs>
1: Uh, but no, yeah, <laughs> all jokes aside, that is, that's that's the filter, man. Um, but, yep. and, and then, look, you also
0: mentioned you're a teacher now, you said. I am a teacher, yeah. Um, and so, and by the way, like, writing, writing is a thick desire. For, yeah. Like, I love okay. to write. I was trying to write books. Uh, my mom was an artist, and I was trying to write books when I was like five, and I was like asking her to illustrate them for me. And oh, that's like another one of those things, cool. right? That it, it's only been in the last six or seven years that I've taken that seriously. And that's like, the more I do it, the more I want to do it. That's like an indication of the thick desire. Then desire is kind of the opposite, right? Like the more you feed it, kind of the less hungry you are. Oh, so, that's
2: great. That's a great uh, example.
0: Yeah. And, t- and you know, teaching is an uh, infinite game, if you will. An infinite game. Yep. And teaching is a great supplement to, to writing because you know, you know how it is. Like, I mean, you don't really know how well you understand something until so you have to teach it. So it's it's really super complimentary to the writing. Like I remember 2019 when I was about to start writing Wanting, I got up in front of my class to, and I was going to give a lecture on mimetic desire. And man, I wish that thing was recorded because I don't think any of them had any idea what mimesis was by the end of that lecture. It was well, pretty Well, going to like this
2: podcast because I'm butchered your <laughs> question so bad. <laughs>
0: I've, had, I've had a few years to work on it now.
2: Yeah, yeah, you're crisp on it. Uh, I just want to say that uh, uh, based on kind of Bilal's question of uh, the, the management of these different desires, there's actually one part of the book which I thought was uh, I, I, maybe it was a bit of a throwaway line, but I really I'm like, oh, this is great. Is uh, you talked you had a friend that he and uh, a close college, he had him and a college uh, roommate or, or college classmate had become the friend frenemies essentially, right? They'd come up, they'd done uh, professional things, and they'd all be looking at each other, being, oh, this guy raised X, uh, this guy's do a, a do a startup Y, and then one day. I guess you had sent, like, a piece of media to your friend. And you're like, hey, look at uh, what uh, Joe X is doing. And your friend's just like, you know what, man? Like, actually, don't send this to me anymore. I stopped trying to follow this guy because you know, he I, I clearly understood that he was modeling his life after this guy, right? Is, is that is that something that you've heard a lot where people are like, just, I don't want to see this person? And it's nothing malicious, right? It's just like, I've identified this individual or, or or this trend is something I don't want in front of my face because I know it's just going to influence me.
0: Totally. Yeah. I mean, he, I, he wouldn't have used the word that mimetic rivalry, but that's what he was in, you know? And he, he just knew it. I mean, the, part of... I think everybody kind of has this idea of this, of what mimetic desire is or what that can be like when you become tethered in an unhealthy way to, to another person. Right. So you kind of got to, got to be knowing what they're doing. I mean, classic case is like, you know, you break up with somebody and like, you just like stalking them to see like who they're dating next. Right. I mean, it's like, that's not healthy. And then you have to ask yourself, like what, what percentage of your energy is devoted to knowing what's going on with that person? And that's keeping you from whatever it is that you need to do, the art that you need to create. So it, it actually get, it interferes with the creative process. Right. I mean, I, th- I think as a writer or an artist, you know, we I understand what it's like more than ever, right? Because like I have authors that I really admire, um, and like artists that I admire. And it's good to like know what they're up to and be inspired by them. But at a certain point, I have to shut everything down and write myself. Right. Cause I mean, if I if I'm just like constantly tethered to what they're doing. Um, it doesn't really allow the creative process to unfold the way that I think it should. So there's like, to some extent you have to put on like horse blinders as part of the creative process in order for the stuff that needs to come out to come out or else it will always in some way be completely derivative of whoever else you're looking to.
2: Also not wrong though. Right. It's the idea that you kind of mentioned in the book too, is like people also need to understand that it's what you said a bit earlier. It's not necessarily a bad thing to have a that desire. It's no. just like there's a continuum, obviously, between like trying to totally. recreate something from scratch versus, oh, we talk a lot about here, the 3% rule was like, listen, 100 billion people have lived on this earth. The odds that you're creating something whole cloth original is very unlikely. But having no, said that, you also don't a, want to be a sucked Yeah, Yeah. And I
0: don't even, yeah, uh, it's it's a balance. And my, my my one of my favorite examples is like Kobe Bryant cited Michael Jordan and you know he imitated everything. He watched a bunch of game film. He imitated his style and then kind of naturally before he knew it, he just developed his own. So I think like we think of imitation as and innovation as two totally separate things. And in my opinion, those two things exist on a continuum, right? At some point you're imitating. There's like some kind of a phase change that happens, like a plane taking off from a runway and it kind of like the imitation becomes innovation. So, you know, the, the message that I've taken away is like, they're they're just, you just need to kind of be aware, like, when is it time to shut it down and just be alone for a while to create, like, who should I look to for inspiration? And just being aware of the influences and the models So it's not like one or the other is is good or bad. But in the case of the, the dude that you're referring to that I mentioned in the book, he had just realized that he was completely tracking this other guy's career in an unhealthy way to the point where if he if he went into a certain kind of business, he wanted to get into that industry just so he could try to like show him up or have more success in that industry, right? Like, and the crypto is actually the example where he had a business that had nothing to do with crypto. So like, you know, is, is it, should I really like shut down what I'm doing just to follow him into the next thing? And it, the decision had nothing to do with, with the opportunity to create something cool. It had everything to do with kind of the ego and the measurement. And that's where he realized that that was becoming a problem.
2: I would love, actually, for Bilal and Jack to give examples. I won't exclude myself because I'm not introspective. Examples of when they've had to track other... Actually, I'll say... I'll go first. Uh, I'll just do super simply. Over uh, in 2022, I thought in my mind I had to raise a solo fund. I was convinced. I saw everybody else also Tech Twitter that was uh, had a big audience. They all had... Or, or trying to raise rolling funds. I'm like, I need to do this. And then I, and then I realized I don't like looking at pitch decks. It's like the biggest... I hate it. Like people send me pitch decks all the time. And like, I always tell this joke, but like, I'll go to the middle of the pitch deck, like slide eight, and then write a reply about slide eight to make it look like it went through the pitch deck. <laughs> oh man, your slide eight, <laughs> whoa, you really nailed <laughs> the formatting on this slide. You know, as an example of me having gone through. It. So, so that's an example for me where people, I, I still get asked by people it's like, hey, well, are you thinking about investing yet? Yeah, no, I have no interest. It's not my skill set, and the only reason I've ever wanted to do it because that's all other people want to do. That is like that. That is Luke's wanting in a nutshell for me. Bilal and Jack, do you have any examples?
1: Yeah, definitely. But one, got got
3: on, go on, Jack. Go for it. <laughs> uh, I would probably do starting a business and trying to basically in the agency world, you're trying to secure the like flashiest clients possible, right? And basically. The bigger the name of the client, the more of a ball ache it's going to be to service the business. That's basically like a linear relationship. I've never because... heard the
2: word ball ache before, by the way. That, that is yeah. the first time in my life in any podcast. <laughs> is
3: that, yeah, I think that's a little English, but yeah, it's beautiful. Really? Yeah, maybe. I thought that was pretty common, but no, that it's it's the right word to use in this instance. But like g- recognizing that and like, Doing what you're good at instead of trying to, like, find a name to attach your thing to was, like, a hard realization. I think I had this, like, moment where I had this client come into town. lived in New York at the time, and uh, it was just Celia and I working in the business, and they were coming from Italy to our office. We had to rent a space in New York, and, like, make it look like there was some office they were were running this business out of a 400 square foot apartment in crown heights but you had to like play up this thing like no we're legit we're in this you know the 10001 zip code and like come to the office and speak to the door person and they just in that meeting like what am i doing man this is ridiculous like if i have to like inflate the I don't know. The image of this business to the point where like that's the thing that is winning us work. And half the world works that way and fair enough. If you like doing that, then go for it. But not my idea of fun. So that like I think that was one moment where it was just like all right. We're just going to be completely forthcoming about the fact that this is like not that. You know, we're not trying to build a team of 20 people, we're not trying to rent a glass office in Manhattan and Whoever doesn't want to work with us as a function of that is a great filtering mechanism for building this thing. And yeah, yeah. it was the right decision.
1: Jack, I, I went for something similar as you with the agency stuff as well, but um, I actually like, ended up flipping it as kind of like a selling point to be like, you're not paying for this overhead. Like That is why they're trying to charge you X amount and we can charge you this amount. because cause I, And the other thing I had similarly was when I was younger, I always had this thing of like worrying about being the young guy i don't know if you guys have had this uh where like you know i started that company i was very young and i'd go through these entrepreneurship sort of things and i'm like 17 all right and then i go to google i was 21 a lot of people at like 26 28 30 and I would, on my first day, I remember being like, hi, I'm Bala, I'm 21 years old. And it was just like the automatic In your thing. suit you, though, right? Yeah, and, in my suit, no, exactly. Bala exactly. was the only
2: person to ever interview with Google wearing like a full suit and tie. He showed up, <laughs> like he's, he's like, saying, hey, where? where's the office, guys? Ah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, that the, just sounds like imposter syndrome a bit, right? No, no, yeah. yeah. Well, it was more like, the, the.
1: I just had no experience. I was like, that's how okay. I introduced myself. I'm from london i'm this age i'm this is my name it's like okay whatever and then over time i realized like so many people like oh my god you're this age and it was they're only a few years older than me but it becomes this psychological thing of like oh now i need to overcompensate and now i need to say i deserve to be here like like you are whatever um but yeah over time you kind of just get over that but to answer your original question trunk uh looping it back i, I had a similar thing to jack there but i The one I'll I'll share is more on, like, we all publish content, right? Like, we've got the podcast. I have another podcast, Luke, called Creator Lab. Um, And uh, I've also written for, like, years. But I think in, like, 2020, like all of us, we're all on Twitter, like, writing and sharing a bunch of stuff. But, like, for the last, basically, since we've done this podcast, pretty much, I just stopped writing everywhere. Like, I checked my Instagram the other day, my personal Instagram. I haven't posted for, like, several years. And the reason is, it's not to say that that isn't the optimal thing to do if you're trying to grow your substack or grow your podcast or make a name for yourself or whatever. But at some point, I got to a point where I said, I'm only doing this because I want to do a podcast because I love doing a podcast. I like having long-form conversations with people and I like what they represent in the world. I'm just going to keep doing that, right? And so that's kind of at one point, like my happiness level just went through the roof because I said, it's not to say I wouldn't ever do this again in the future, but right now, I was like, I don't even love doing this. I'm having to like think about, oh, what am I going to write today? Am I going to schedule out a tweet? Am I using this random tool to like generate ideas? And I'm like, that's not like, even if I could do it, it's not like what I enjoy doing. So the main reason I do creative stuff is because I want to enjoy my day-to-day life. And if I'm not enjoying it, there's, there's no point in me doing it. So Pick um, desire. Yeah. exactly, exactly. So yeah, <laughs> that
0: that was my answer there, Trunk. But good, good question. No, that was great. I love that. Yeah, I've, I've had the same experience. I mean, it's like, are people what like what version of me are people like? I don't know. Um, do they do they are they coming from my work and my art and my writing, or are they coming because I'm saying the right things? Um, and it can become exhausting having to kind of like always need to conform to what people expect of you and people end up putting you into a box really quickly, right? It's like classic audience capture. So I've just decided, and it kind of reminds me of what, you know, both of you have said, right? Like at a certain point, you're like, I'll be miserable if I have to kind of like conform my life around like the fancy, like entertaining, putting on the dog and pony show. Like it just gets to be exhausting after a while and takes away time and energy from you. Just like, you either like my work or you don't shouldn't they shouldn't rely on me like hosting you in this fancy building right so like mm-hmm. I think everybody needs to decide as a creator like what what kind of like trade-offs they're willing to make and I've kind of decided um like you never know what you're gonna get I don't even publish on a regular schedule because I'm like if I have to do that I know that eventually it's just gonna get exhausting for me and I'm doing it because I like the spontaneity of doing it and the people that will unsubscribe will unsubscribe you know and there's like this process of kind of curating an audience and the people that stay are the people that actually like the real me it's the way that i think about it it's kind of yeah. like being in a relationship you know what i'm saying like you got to be yourself
2: yeah that's why today, six months in you start farting in the room because before right. you're holding it <laughs> <laughs> no i'm actually my mom was like literally there was a moment in my relationship with my now wife like i used to walk out to the balcony and like fart and she was like now i know why you're on the balcony
1: <laughs> you're getting fresh air trung every yeah, like, uh, 17 well, minutes well I gotta take this call after that chinny I had zero yeah.
2: calls to take uh, <laughs> listen That's if you don't letters. like the parts this is just not the newsletter for you it's not gonna work you. out yeah Listen. <laughs> Uh, well, it's dash to the perfect pivot to the next question I had. Perfect. <laughs> 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 no, because I uh, look at we got like uh, you about 12 more minutes. Strong is the king of
1: transitions, by the way. Yes. I don't know if you have noticed that <laughs> he's got it. some
2: incredible
1: hard <laughs> transition. Is so good. God, uh, drive what, what you got?
2: No, because I uh, Luke's last ride or drive news. I don't know. Well, two, two ago, uh, you were talking about AI. I just saw two things you wrote about AI recently. One was a tweet? Uh, about generative AI, and you're like, I haven't felt a single thing from like any output I've seen from GPT-4, and I'm in the same boat, and even though I'm shilling AI powered Research App, uh, coupon NIA150, <laughs> what I was going to say was, um, what are your thoughts and how can you apply uh, mimetic desire, uh, mimesis, and all that whole theory to what's happening in generative AI?
0: I I need to think about this for another couple of years before I I feel like I have like anything worthwhile to say, but I'll say something that's maybe not worthwhile. I don't know. Um, I I I think like generative AI is probably both better and worse than anybody's sort of thinks that it is. Right. Um, I I do think it's a monumental change. Um, I think uh, I'm just trying to think of like how it it, it is true so I tweeted that out and I was like I have not personally found an instance of using ChatGPT 4 that has like benefited me and that I received a ton of replies to that tweet um like one person said that it helped like save their dog and another oh, person yeah, yeah, helped diagnose an illness and um so I know that that stuff is is real and Trunk is frozen so uh I hope it's he's right. re- He'll reacting be back.
1: <laughs> We do this once um, a week as part of the as part yeah, of the yeah. show uh
0: so I, I know that there's a lot of great use cases out there. I think some of the like AI is gonna kill us all in six months stuff is is kind of crazy. Um one of my favorite books I think is worth worthwhile reading for anybody is The Myth of AI by Eric Larson. There's a lot of confusion about what consciousness actually is and like people are throwing around a lot of words without really understanding what they mean. And um if we if we invest too much kind of like hype in generative AI, like we forget the wonderful thing that is like human creativity and ingenuity and and the human brain and like the best of humanity. So that's kind of the point of the book, right? It's it's like let's not let's not uh, outsource our thinking to AI and pretend it's gonna solve all of our problems. I think that mimesis plays a huge role in it because I mean AI by its very nature is derivative of, of us and our brains. I mean we invented it. So in, in some sense, it's it's derivative by its nature and it's mimetic and it can imitate um, what it's giving. And um, the, the fascinating thing for me is to think about, like, what if AI, what if generative AI begins to desire things, right? I mean, what does that even mean, right? Like, can AI, like, actually want something? Um, it's like synthetic desire. I mean, it's a super weird concept to think about, and I, it, it certainly won't be the same kind of desires that we have, and they'll have to be derivative of ours. So in a sense, I worry that generative AI, to the extent that it mimics wanting or mimics desire, um, it will only be able to want the things that that we want, um, that we show it is worth wanting. So in a sense, I think it will like supercharge mimesis in a way. Um, and that's, that's something that I I don't see anybody talking about that. I think it's something that we have to be careful about, but we're just, we're using a lot of, I mean, I don't even like calling it desire because I don't think it's the same thing. Um, I mean, I am thinking about in strictly utilitarian terms, like how can I use it in positive ways? And I'm starting to write another book right now. And I think it'll be tremendously valuable in, you know, the research that I'm doing for that book. Um, but I just need to figure out the right freaking questions to ask it because, so you know, so far it's just frustrating me. I, I've, I mean, I've got some of the most ridiculous answer that I've ever seen from, from ChatGPT, um, even about like, like who I am and my work and kind of like what is, medic- it, it hasn't got anything right yet, so I'm just I'm giving it a little bit more time before I invest too much time and energy.
2: Apologies for uh, the Canadian internet there, but I did hear I did hear ninety percent of that uh, answer. Good, Thank good. you. Jack Bilal, did you have any last ones? What, I got what, one last just, one, but I'm going to yeah, hold off for w- you guys.
1: I want to get you to hit that. I was just saying, uh, Luke, while you were saying that, I asked ChatGPT and Bard um, what they desire. And uh, it's quite an interesting. I mean, it, the ChatGPT one is basically saying, I don't have desires. Uh, I'm a machine designed to process, generate language, blah, blah, blah. My purpose is to assist you. Bard had a bit more detail. I was kind of surprised. Um... But yeah, I, I don't have to read out the whole thing. That's not well, the best content for a Google podcast. Uh,
2: We've got a split disclaimer. test. We've got, we got to see what's going on. We got
3: to <laughs> yeah, make my own uh, one was decisions. Way on the this. bar
2: wool is much better.
3: <laughs> yeah. now, did you guys uh, I, I have any? Been... Go ahead, Jack. Uh, I was just going to come at this from my own uh, hammer nail bias on the visual side, Luke, like this idea of creating symbols or, like, aggregating visual consciousness in a way that feels, like, completely different than anything that we've collectively experienced before where the ability, like the Edward Bernays reference that you made earlier, like, the barrier to creating images or symbols or, like, you know, your... um poignant observation about the eyes being the organ that create or like the entry point for memetic desire if all the inputs for that now the barrier to entry for creating those inputs goes to zero like the implications of that i think are very profound on obviously creating fake i use that term with a heavy um in very yeah, commerce for yeah. anyone listening, mm-hmm. like fake images, misinformation, uh, however you want to define that, like anybody doctoring an image in any way, shape, or form is like is uh changing reality in the context in which it's, they present it, etc., et etc. Cetera, et cetera. But I think the image stuff has a more immediate and tangible, violent effect on how we interact with one another. I don't know what the answer is there, but like your, um, the language that we, the language that was in that piece that we collaborated on that I I spoke through at the start Uh just makes me think, uh, about that idea. And if you think about platforms like Instagram, TikTok, like places where people are like outsourcing their desires to, you know, or Mm -hmm. like at least looking to places that aggregate like. This is the thing you should be aiming for. This person has this. Uh, if like those images can come from, basically, people don't have to gather the resources to make the image anymore. You follow what I'm saying? Like the yeah. the ability to fake a lifestyle. Exactly. It either has a positive effect because people know that it may or may not be true, or it has a negative effect in the sense that everybody kind of in this more exponential memetic desire environment. So anyway, not not a uh, conclusion by any means, just something fascinating to see, we'll see play out. Oh, 100%. And I mean, it makes me immediately think of um, my students who
0: come as freshmen in college and have really, most of them really have no idea what they want to do. You know, they're just trying to figure out their major and like where they're going to intern for the summer. So, like, imagine asking ChatGPT, like, "Here's a bit about myself. Like, what should my career be, or something like that?" And like, have it kind of like determine life paths for us. That's a that's a super weird thing to think about, right? Like, you can kind of outsource yeah. the the hard work of like taking risks and making decisions, and like mm-hmm. kind of like what has made life so fascinating for me. Um,
3: that's that's a crazy thing yeah, to think you know- about, right? I think you tweeted something along these lines, but like the homogenization of this stuff, where it's coming from one voice, like even before, like your point about career advice, if you'd have put it in Google, it would have come up in context of like this, you know, law school X talking about law careers or person X with this name and this background and this history talking about the pros and cons of this career. Whereas this like spits out something that doesn't have a author or doesn't contextualize the response in a way that like helps you judge it. You know, do you follow what I'm saying there? Where it's like, this is the answer. Chat. GPT yeah. assigned this. This is the answer. Not like this is a, an opinion presented by X. These sources I think as is well. Yeah. Yeah. In the old world.
0: Yeah. And there's, it's not necessarily tested against lived experience. Um, yeah, it's just it, exactly. It just kind of comes from this cloud of unknowing, this kind of mysterious yeah. thing, which yeah. um, I mean, I, I remember uh, like distinctly. Um, I tweeted about this a couple of days ago because I've had this happen to me. Do you guys know what the Stendhal effect is? It's, it's um, the, the French author, uh, Stendhal, said he, when he went to Florence for the first time, the kind of like beauty of the city and walking into the churches and everything made him physically ill. And it's it's now been oh, wow. coined by the medical profession as the Stendhal effect, like when you like you walk into like a museum and you're standing in front of like a piece of artwork or something like that, it makes you like lightheaded and dizzy and you can't take it in. And anyways, I had something like that. I lived in Italy for a few years, and I I had something like that happen to me where I was like I got my world was rocked when I'm just being exposed to like the beauty of. Couple of piazzas and stuff like that. And I, I can honestly say, like, it changed my life forever. Like, it made me realize that I have this need for, like, how much art, how, how important art is to me. And that I connected that to my family and my mom, who's an artist, and totally changed the trajectory of my life, right? Like, I was planning to be like a doctor or lawyer before that. So, that, like, how do you, you know, that's just like some tacit awareness of lived experience that I had out there in the mm-hmm. world through my eyes, going back to the eyes. Right. I'm taking in like billions of information. It's being processed um, through my eyes and had this profound effect on me. And uh, it's very mysterious. Right. So I I love, I I don't, I don't know. I I love living with that sense of kind of mystery where you have those moments where you don't necessarily know know what's going to happen next, but you just know that your world's been rocked. Right. Could be meeting somebody for the first time. You can't even put, Mm -hmm. put into words what it was about that encounter. Um, so that's I like I like uh I like leaving leaving the world open to kind of collisions and spontaneity and like telling my students like, yeah, you can you can ask ChatGPT four like to give you some advice. But when it comes to like walking outside and, you know, having unexpected encounters, like make sure that you're not looking down at your phone and that you're ready for those things when they happen. Right? Whether it's, you know, your future spouse or whatever it is, like be
3: open and be ready to kind of process that through the lived experience that you have. Yeah, beautiful, yeah man. man, I wrote this in uh, I wrote this in, the dis- in a Visualized Value Discord last night. The, like, alpha now exists by going analog, like, in all of these, uh, like, you want to make something original, like, go to the library. Because you're also <laughs> getting fed information that has been validated yeah. by the most nodes at any given time. It's like, you're just funneled into the trend over and over and over and over eyeballs that are like we're going to give you this piece of content that we know you're going to look at even i mean everybody's commented on this at this point but it's like the for you feed on twitter is an obvious move for attention purposes but like probably net negative experience for most people like you open twitter and there's like people fighting like smashing grocery carts into each other or whatever. I saw when I woke up this morning, I was like, what is this? I didn't yeah. ask for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: uh, i will go to the library. I, I, I'm, I'm glad the, the library I'm made,
3: grocery that that is grocery. That is the best way to
1: finish it, it. off. No, I, I know
2: Lou's got a boogie, so I think <laughs> yeah, that's I the perfect say, got thing to let Luke so. off on. And uh, yep. uh, you guys want to keep chatting afterwards? I'd love to decompress. Yeah, we
0: can decompress. Marinate on Luke's thoughts. Appreciate coming on, man. Thank you, man. Yeah, thank Thanks so much, guys. appreciate it everyone I'll, go um, check out the book and well, subscribe pleasure. to
1: the the sub stack we'll share those links
0: in the show notes below as well um yeah look yeah, we'll yeah, have to yeah, do not, this again not, man appreciate it yeah well thanks thanks guys not not enough time but i'll be tweeting at all you guys in the yes. next week or so so <laughs> I'll, there. I'll, I'll see you in the twitter all right guys see you, see right, you man good have you good one. appreciate it cheers
1: nice Yo. one boys Should we just keep rolling
2: yeah yeah let's uh this actually uh, let's let's jump off on uh, jack's point about the twitter algo i don't know uh Oh, I don't yeah. know how much you guys have read on the uh, the open sourceness of it. Did you guys take yeah. a look at some of those? Yeah, we were uh, chatting
1: in the DMs about some of the the threads. Well, yeah, where we people we, are we shared
2: some and a lot of a a lot of some surprising done. things
1: in there which we can maybe talk about in a minute. But um, yeah, yeah, I'm happy. You're talking to, about I'm the 4 you page. Thing.
3: You said we should talk. We should talk about it because it's a good. Uh, I'll
2: list off. I'll list the off the idea, top uh, line. Uh, go ahead. I was
3: Sorry, go just going to say the. Maybe Luke's frame of the like thin and thick desires. The thin desire is the fight video, the fucking like horrendous content that you see that's just served up to the most eyeball. I mean, am I am I mad? or you guys seeing that stuff, right? No, no, I've seen I'll be yeah, yeah. yeah. I have to keep switching to following as well. School fights. I've
2: seen a lot of school fights.
3: Yeah, I'm just saying it's not like me being deranged and wanting that stuff. It's like that is like a biological People everyone, are gonna to react to that. When there's a
1: fight in the playground, everyone looks, right? That's everyone shouts, yeah.
3: "Fight! Fight! Fight!" and runs over. That's probably why. So yeah, yeah. So like, you can be transparent about the algorithm, but what's interesting to me is like that that that's not necessarily indicative of value, right? The idea of value being confused with what is the what grabs the most attention depending on your definition of value from the perspective of someone who wants eyeballs on a social media platform, that's value from somebody who like wants to develop their brain into something other than (laughs) like a sewer that is not valuable. Right. That's
2: other than a garbage bin. Yeah. So there are conflicting
3: incentives involved, transparency or not.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Which is
3: like, like you're, you're building it based on, I, I I'm just conflicted about this cuz I, I love the transparency component of it and I think the like signal versus noise or the you know pull up the the show me what you care about it's like what you look at what you spend money on uh it's interesting because there is a conflict there show oh, me
2: your for you feed show me the cha- cha- your chat GPT
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. search <laughs>
1: history as
2: well people
3: yeah, show me you how feed for and I'll one. show you who you are yeah, I, yeah. True. like that's an interesting thing, but that I I actually think that's a good frame for it because it doesn't show you that, right? It shows you like what you are, not who you are. Not to get too philosophical, but it's like here are the things that you're going to react to biologically. Here's the shit that's going to push your buttons. Not necessarily the stuff that's going to um the
1: teenager know, in the bedroom, for like a long I said, time.
3: basically, yeah, same yeah, same you're thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah. right so man it's just been a, a well, fascinating fascinating week man but the transparency is definitely quality man quality move it is yeah it people it, understand you're, you're gonna give a rundown of it
2: yeah I'll, I'll, uh, i uh i agree with jack that uh i mean here compared to any other social network right because the criticisms are like well actually you actually don't know what what good is a source code if you don't know what weights they're putting on each variable? What good is a source code if you don't have the underlying like user data? Well, it's like, yeah. Obviously he's not gonna put the entire thing on. I mean, he's obviously said that, but let's be honest here. You know, you just that's not gonna happen. It's not maybe not happened happening today, and it clearly didn't. But you know, you have an idea of at least why things are getting recommended to you. And a lot of it is just intuition, right? It's like like I'll just give one example. Links get downloaded. We know this. We talk about it all the time, yeah. right? Like, there's literally like Bilal constantly saying, Trunk, should we not post the uh, NIA <laughs> uh, uh, launch with the link? Like, every week, he's just like, Trunk, are we sure we should do this? But uh, <laughs> I'll tell you the trade off on the trade-off on that, that nobody looks at the second tweet. That's the trade off, right? That's what me and Bilal yeah. talk about. But um, the thing about the, so let's talk a bit about well, what they did open source. So, the open source, the recommendation stuff, which is what a lot of people looked at, and the TLDR in it. Anybody that's ever worked in social networks or even broadly knows it. it's not really not surprising what's going on here. They're trying to figure out a way for the I don't know I think there's, they get 100 million tweets a day or something ridiculous. They're trying to figure out how to serve you 1,500 tweets like whenever you open that app that are relevant to you. And and basically the way they determine relevance is do you engage with that tweet? And engagement uh, uh, from Twitter is likes, retweets, replies time spent on the tweet itself and time spent on the person's profile so these are all the variables that are getting mixed in i mean we talk about youtube on the uh, on the show a lot same deal right youtube below uh, what was it watch time is the big watch yeah, time I mean, big, it's uh, click
1: uh, like if you think of the journey it's click through rate for well how many thumbnail, people clicked right? on the thumbnail that's like yeah. the headline equivalent of a news article then it's basically uh time spent there's actually uh it's like retention retention is the better yeah the word so how long did you stay did you stay for the first 30 seconds that's like weighted in one way and then how long did you stay and engage then also likes and comments and stuff like that as well but i think that's less important
2: yeah, Twitter's uh Twitter's the same. I, I I nailed it. It's like length and comments are less uh, relevant to uh to YouTube than a watch time, right? So that's what they kind yeah, of no, uh, I think also the,
1: the common thing people think of views being the number one metric, right? Versus like time spent. Total you don't watch time see that. You don't important. see that from the right. outside. And I think people would judge a piece of content on, oh, that got two million views, which right. to be fair, if it got two million views, the watch time was high too, but that's the the part you don't see is well, on the know, other Bond side. Well, you know Bone
2: Dog's crossroads when it says 100 million views. The, the, <laughs> people are watching that from beginning to end. The, or they're the falling and- into that biggie verse, <laughs> yeah. one of the best verses <laughs> of all
1: time, man. Jesus Christ. Anyway, no, exactly. go on, uh, so that yeah, was the I'll summary, just, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's some uh, parts of it, which so I'll, I'll kind of talk through how they actually do it. It's like, basically, they have 145,000 different clusters of how they kind of park, like classify content. Like, that's freaking wild right? And, I mean, some of the categories when are you audience, say that, like, is that
1: kind of like Netflix, you know, when we talk about Netflix serving all up the
2: micro-categories, yeah, right? Yeah, like, like
1: British teenage yeah. dramas or whatever. Exactly, like, right? So, like, it. the
2: biggest categories are, are, are not going to be shocking. It's like football, pop stars, and NBA, right? Like, those are ones that, like, have a lot of, of followers and, and people that will be served that type of content. So, again, they're trying to win you down 1,500 pieces of content. And... They do that, they try to split it, I think, between within people you follow. And then now, obviously, as Jack alluded to with the For You, they're jamming in stuff that is like viral. So the, it's called in network and out of network. So in network is obviously people that you're following or in lists, Out of network is the, uh, the shop.
3: Gen Pop, flights.
2: baby. <laughs> or the Gen Pop, right? So.
1: Uh, Trunk, there's this one in here that I saw, Trusted Circle. Is that the same? Yeah, yeah. Trusted circle. Thing? I
2: think I think they're basic I think the trusted circle is they see who you engage with the most. And then they call that kind of I'm just gonna your share circle. my screen
1: at the same time. This is your boy, Peter Yang. You you this, right? Yeah, yeah. This is a good tweet. Oh, yeah. So while well, well, why, yeah. why don't
2: you read through that as to like so, as a p-
1: tweeter, this is what gives your tweet. Yeah, yeah. Peter uh, Twitter algo 101 on boost, likes thirty X, retweets twenty X. Twitter, blue, 2 to 4x. Trusted circle, 3x. Images, videos, 2x. Replies, 1x. Negatives, URL only. No text, mute, block, unfollow, report. That that one's a bit more obvious. Um, but Wait, I can think you the scroll one... down a
2: bit, block Because oh. it says, this guy asked, anyone know what trusted circle is? And then oh, it yeah, and he said, here.
1: could this be it? Yeah, I mean, it's a big block of text. I'm probably not going to be able to
3: yeah, summarize that on
1: the pod. But, um, well, actually, sorry. Well, well I just clicked it. it. There's a visual here for people on YouTube. I don't know if that makes much sense. It, this reminds me of like in 2020, everyone was posting those images of like your map of people yeah. that you interact with. Interact with it, probably something similar the most. circle, yeah. Might be something similar to that. But anyway, um, but yeah, I think the one that surprised us, I, I don't know if this is getting too tactical, but the likes versus retweets, I, I know yeah. we talked about that over text or DM or something because generally speaking, like to me anyway, as a user, I will like way more things than I retweet and I know from people like you guys who have told me, like, what helped you guys go viral slash grow, like, retweets always seem to be way more important. And that still might be the case. It's just maybe the, the, the weighting isn't here. Maybe there's like 10 times more likes than retweets. I don't know. Well, how it actually, works.
2: something that could work is like the retweet actually puts you into different feeds where it's more likely to get interacted with. Whereas a yeah. like is just an individual boost, maybe to your oh, that's, just,
1: that's a good point. Yeah, that might um, be like more impressions on your tweet, but not necessarily more like getting in front of new people and, new people, and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly, right? And followers specifically, which is what you were probably trying to get. But yeah, that that makes sense.
2: Yeah, nothing else like, real, I mean, the, the people, like some surprising things they found was like, Elon was hard-coded, his name was hard-coded into the code base. They had four categories. Yeah, it was like power user, a Democrat, Republican, and Elon. I think they already changed it. But uh, yeah, what's funny about that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. What that was, was actually tracking metrics, but obviously all the haters like, yeah, we don't believe that. But the other thing that, um, uh, that's interesting, was, you know, you, you you said there that Twitter Blue gives you a two to four times boost. I saw a lot of interesting comments. They're like, actually, if that's the case, Twitter easily, e- either has to put underneath those tweets like some type of promoted because technically you're paying for promotion, right? Mm. You did, That wasn't the deal that you cut exclusively, but if you're getting a boost from being on Blue, like, by math, that's what's happening. So people are saying, I think they actually changed... That part of the code, I think they de-boosted it, so they wouldn't get in uh, trouble with the uh, with the uh, regulators uh, without showing the kind of the ad uh, thing, which is objectively hilarious, right? That is pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then, and the other part, well, add about Twitter. There's so many things going on. The obviously the verified stuff. I thought it was the pretty. The Doge, um, the Doge. Yeah,
1: the Twitter Doge. Twitter So logo. people
2: don't know that are on Twitter. Yesterday, they replaced the uh, bird icon with the the Doge, uh, uh, the Doge coin logo, which is the dog. I thought it was like, a, the the most likely explanation, I heard two. The first one was that somebody had sued Elon 285 billion dollars for pumping Dogecoin, and that that was like a headline story uh, yesterday because he's trying to get thrown out. Obviously, not a serious lawsuit, but they think that he launched this Dogecoin thing to like bury that story. I don't think it was. What I think it was, was I think this is meant to be an April Fool's joke. <laughs> but It came out two days late because I don't know who's still left to do implement that exactly. That's so
1: funny that that could actually be the most plausible answer to yeah, be honest. Yeah,
2: right. I mean, which is hilarious. Which is it amazing. Just got delayed,
1: and they're like, "All right, we've done the work for this. We might as well yeah, just put it, it out now." Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's funny. But well, what... actually, Jack, I want
2: to start. I'm saying I want to ask Jack about the verification stuff because I mean, this is like this is germane to your checks project, brother. What do you think about the move to they 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 threatened to get rid of people? Uh, Legacy Blue. And then they ended up only really getting rid of the New York Times' blue check, which is hilarious. And then now their other solution was every blue check now says this is either a Twitter Blue subscriber or a Legacy. That was the solution,
3: Jack. So he walked it back then, right? He
2: he, he basically walked it back that he didn't get rid of them all and he combined them into a big mush. And uh, I want your thoughts on that.
1: Wait, sorry, when you say combined, sorry, before you answer, Jack, you mean. You talking about the caveat? The, the caveat where you click the and it caveat would say, when you hover over it, it says yeah, it's either blue or, or legacy. So now they're just both. So it's a kind of like not. Of it's a gangster. Nintendo. Like it's a yeah. good...
3: yeah, yeah. So like what do you the think? idea that I mean, I think that's an interesting solution. Like the strong arming all of these people into like basically giving up. You know, like. There, I think the general reception to this in pop culture is like, it is cool to not have the blue check, right? That was the, that was going to be the point in time where it was like, makers of taste and pop culture would not want to pay $8 for their blue check mark, right? And, And in not doing that would become like more verified almost, you get what I'm saying? So building a system that doesn't take that away from them, but also doesn't distinguish them from the people who did pay $8 is to me a pretty clever way to like still devalue that status, but you know, get the, I mean, if any, I mean, it's kind of fascinating that now there's, there's more speculation around whether or not it was earned or not, which is kind of the point, right? there. The response to the blue, like the paid Twitter blue subscriber that you see in replies, is like, "Ah, this person paid for Twitter; they're an idiot." That meme's dead. That meme's dead. Yeah, right. They just that's killed now. Whereas now it'll be speculation, like, "Oh, this person only has X number of followers, so they're probably not." Right. It's kind of fascinating how um, that changes the context of it again. I think Meta just launched theirs too last.
1: Yeah, they did a verification that also they, does... I have they know. completely got rid of,
3: like, a celebrity won't
1: have the verified checkmark I don't know yet. what they're
3: doing with that. That's a, we, should, we should figure out what they're doing with that, but I feel like they'll play it way less controversially than Well, they they got, because Instagram
2: is much more linked to the, the, the
1: blue.
3: Lifestyle, yeah. Yeah,
2: it's like, they need that. And people actually make legit money on there, right? Um, what, I'll
1: yeah. just to give my opinion, to be very honest. Like, I get the argument everyone's had about what counts as verified? Obviously, we did a whole episode of Jack on his project being based on this idea, so I don't want to do it to death. But just for me, like as someone who's trying to filter the internet for crap, and especially now there's scams. Like you, you guys, I'm sure get people. I mean, Jack, you had something recently where someone, you know, hacked something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but before that, you also just get people like changing the name to Jack Butcher and like, you know, it, they'll pay for the verified thing. And they'll scam people with that, right? And that happens on Instagram to so many people as well. So to me, that that is a that is a ten out of ten problem. And the actual verified check mark, if you had it, was really helpful for me to understand. Oh, this person is the real, you know, Ryan Reynolds. Mm-hmm. This is the right person version of that. And so, as me trying to filter through the internet for misinformation, as it is, this this made it way harder to do so. And I think that's a negative thing for the platform. And I, I think there's just been this weird dance where I don't doubt that Elon Musk and, and team think that this is, you know, this big talking point that who gets to decide who's important. But sometimes it's actually helpful to know it's The Rock. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't think that's that crazy to say he's a noble person. It's like, like yeah, right. maybe there's a gray area of in between that. Like, oh, one person is, a, you know, a journalist and they got it through their company. Yeah, that is a slightly different thing. But yeah, for me personally, it's just objectively a worse experience. So that, that's kind of my Fair conclusion enough. on it.
2: I, uh, I haven't thought, well, I love that. actually Jackson thought through more of this, but there definitely has to be a way to give I understand the logic to pay for verifying, like our pay to use the platform, like increase the cost of bad behavior. But to Bilal's point, like as a user of the platform and not a big content creator, but content consumer. Like knowing that there was some process, even if it. And, and let's be clear, scams were happening with blue checks. Oh, definitely. Way yeah. before Elon, right? Like, yeah. like I would see blue checks with 800 followers, like trying to show crypto. So, does that? I guess some of them even started companies
1: and swindled the yeah, whole exactly. world. Yeah. So, but yeah,
2: they raised uh, three billion dollars for a crypto <laughs> exactly. platform. Yeah. Uh, a crypto trading platform. Uh, I'm actually trying to like I'm right. I'm thinking through. Like, um, what the? Well, there is one game theory play here, right? And and it hasn't worked out so far, but it was the idea that you get the organizations to pay. So it's $10,000 a year, $50 for each person a month. It's, a, it's pricey, but that's also a form of verification, right? Like, if you go to, well, as the easiest example, I have one fourth work, work week, right? Work week pays for that second icon for the organization. Uh, and the, fun, the funny enough, B- Jeff Bezos recently accepted that he got his Amazon one. People were trolling him because it looked like he was refusing to do it. <laughs> but now he has it. But like that is also a way to circumvent what Bilal said. But now you're, you're clearly trying to find ways to drum up money, right? And I actually think that there should... But I do think that we're headed to a world where you got to pay for these type of services. Like, it's pretty clear that Apple really fucked a lot of people with this digital advertising plan, right? yeah. And- Gotta be new revenue suit. I'm not saying that this is the solution. I'm saying it's clear Elon is experimenting and the team are experimenting they've take uh, there have been L's. Like the Twitter blue rollout in November is objectively one of the funniest things that ever happened. And uh and they obviously had to roll that back, they had to fix that and like put layers into place with to many people seemed obvious in hindsight what was gonna happen. But yeah, I think there's gotta be a way to move towards a solution where you get people to pay for this type of stuff and it's so hard right it's like it is such an uphill battle and I understand why I I don't want to pay for sh- I get it so yeah that's just my thinking around the, the verification in general that's like they they got to figure something out
3: yeah I mean yeah crazy if you think about the yeah the, the Apple thing is a good observation where it's like downstream of different incentives but paying 15 bucks a month for Netflix or whatever streaming service you use versus like $8 for Twitter, which for the average, like reasonably online person, you probably get a lot more screen time in on Twitter than you do on Netflix. I guess the argument is that the people that use the platform are making the content. Therefore like that logic doesn't make sense to Many people, where it's like I'm creating the stuff, so why am I paying to use the network? And uh, well, yeah, you're gonna have good features, there's...
2: right? It's to your point, yeah, Jack.
3: exactly. What, that's no, yeah. That's the point. I think
2: I think bundling uh, the verification with the features and like making it so not necessarily politicized, but such a hot topic. Yeah, really, because there are like I keep saying it, like the nuzzle top articles feature on Twitter is incredible. I would pay five to eight dollars a month. What like, does that do? Sorry, the, trunk. What is that? Just, it aggregates for the fifteen to twenty top articles that your network's talking about, and then the net worth network. So, like, that's to me the best way. Is of that happening now? Yeah, you go to top articles if you have Twitter Blue. It's amazing. It's an amazing feature, and you see what top everybody articles. in your network is talking about that one piece of content. Oh yeah, it really aggregates. Like you're talking about. Well, discovery. there's a good. Show yeah. me your
3: top articles. I'll tell you who you are. That's yeah. a good one. There. <laughs> no, but what I
2: mean is like. The, but, they, but that gets totally lost in the verification thing, right? To to Bilal's point. It's like, Bilal's, like it, Bilal's association with verification and $8 payment is like this total cluster F. Like, I don't know what to really trust anymore. Yeah. Whereas like if it had just been famous, like, oh, people are paying for really cool features. Exactly.
1: Uh, I pay for YouTube premium. I pay for Spotify. I pay for like a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And I happily pay because the features warrant me paying and I get enough value out of them. And so far as someone who's mostly reading on Twitter, I'm not getting that at the current moment, but that might change. For example, if they literally just flipped the switch and said there's zero ads on blue, I would probably just pay because I hate seeing ads, you know? And so on my desktop, I can use an ad blocker with 98% of the time I'm on Twitter is on my phone. And uh, so- and and honestly, the the ads on Twitter aren't that annoying. Like, I kind of skip them anyway. But on YouTube, they're super annoying. So I, I pay for that. Blah, I don't but know if you yeah. saw
2: that, but Ralph, if you want to cut that, when Balaz was describing looking at his phone, he, like, <laughs> totally just, like, looked at an imaginary phone and started scrolling. No, my phone's
1: over here. That's why. I, that, I was looking <laughs> oh, at my phone. But, uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, the, I think it's worth us discussing that. Anything else, boys, before we wrap it up?
2: Um... I do. I'm probably this is probably out of place at this point, but I'll just add the one thought about uh, Luke's book. So, oh, def, yeah. one. So, wanting is an incredible book. I mean, Jack worked with Luke on the NFT stuff around it, and Jack obviously made some really sick visuals that hopefully we can get some links to. Um, but uh, the one thing that we haven't mentioned this entire chat was Peter Teal. So, Peter Teal, other than uh, you know, previous to Luke and Luke, who Luke did meet for this book, Peter Teal was a student of uh of Grenade Girard and uh. I would advise reading the book and Zero to One, uh, Peter Thiel's book, is heavily influenced by Rene Girard. That's why, why, there's two things that Peter Thiel talks about about business in his book, Zero to One. He actually never mentions Rene Girard's name though. And and, and Luke talks about it in his own book, Wanting, about why Peter Thiel did that. He Peter Thiel's like, this idea of mimetic desire is just so powerful. It just pervades everything that humanity does. I didn't want to like, blow people's minds and like how to reassess everything while I'm trying to talk about business right so he just tried to but he tried to take the lessons from Amesis and MAMAC desire into zero to one so two I'd put for our business builders out there is like this is why Peter Thiel says you know competition is for suckers it's like you want you don't want to be in a situation where you're competing against somebody, you're just tracking what they're doing, and, like, you're caught in this memetic design. You want to build, like, a true monopoly. You're in your own lane. You're not worried about what other people are doing, right? This is why he says monopolies are great. They're, they're quote-unquote, easy once you crack them. Another thing he did was at, at PayPal, uh, before, uh, when he was at Confinity, which merged with Elon Musk X to form PayPal, at Confinity, he would give every employee one job only. And the reason he did that was because he knew that young, uh, uh, ambitious people, especially at a startup like uh, that he was building, they would all want similar things if it was a free for all. They don't want to become CEO. They don't want to become head of sales. He's like, You have one job. This is the only job that I'm judging you on. You do this job. I'm not going to assign that job to anyone else. So he diffused memetic desire and like c- diffused any conflict around work by just giving people one job and not letting them compete. For the same resources, which I thought was pretty cool. Do you, do you know, know how that one?
1: happens when they want to progress though?
2: Well, it was just such a crazy, environment. Yeah, oh, it was yeah, like yeah. It was like, uh, uh, and that was just for PayPal the time. They, they didn't they didn't last very long there. Was like, but it got sold to eBay, obviously. And then no, because I thing like the idea.
1: I'm just, yeah, curious how it plays out.
2: Well, you know? yeah, I don't know how scalable that is, but uh, I mean, there there seems to the truth to it because you always hear about the politics and backstabbing in corporations, right? Um, last thing I'll add. Is uh, Zuckerberg, why he invested in Facebook? He's like, he's the first outside investor in Facebook. Reid Hoffman, his PayPal colleague, introduced him to Zuckerberg, and then he saw Facebook. He's like, he immediately got it. He's like, you're showing people your desires. He's like, the entire platform is showing what your bio is, showing what you do. At this time, it's at Harvard, it's at the Ivy Leagues. It was what started you do by ranking people, yeah. right? Like, it's like, it's looks, like basically. this is it, right? It's like this is a desire, like machine. He's like, this is memetic desire. He's like, this is hacking, like like marrying technology is memetic desire. He's like, this is going to be huge. So, yeah, he turned 500,000 to a billion with his Facebook investment. But, anyways, read that in read a the book. rough
1: IRA account as well, or yes. something like that. Yeah. In a <laughs> Incredible. Uh, all right, boys. I think that's a great way to wrap it up. Um, that was a good episode, boys. Enjoyed that. Thanks for uh, getting Luke on, uh, boys. I think that yeah, was absolutely. a good guest. Hope you all enjoyed that. Uh, anything else before we wrap up, boys?
2: Oh, uh, no, man. That was great. Uh, no show this week. Uh...
1: Yeah, yeah. No, sure. Well, well, you already got one in. So uh, we'll got one uh, in, yeah. save that for later. People but, all listen right.
2: to Creator Lab. C-R-A-T-O-R-L-A-B. Leave a review.
1: There we go. All right, boys. Thanks for being here with us. And we'll see you next week. Cheers. Bye-bye. Peace.